Chapter 15 of Exodus is most famous for what is known as the Song of Moses. And it's just that. It's a song sung by Moses on the other side of the Reed Sea, if you were with us last week. After the Lord had delivered Israel and wiped out their enemies, the Egyptian army. And if you want the details of that incredible story, just go back and listen to last week's study. This is the first song or poem recorded in scripture. It is also the last song recorded in scripture sung by those who are martyred in the tribulation in Revelation chapter 15. And the truth is that there's a type of singing, a type of singing that is just not possible until your spirit is free. In today's study, we're gonna see the Israelites go through some experiences that will teach us about spiritual truths. And this is something that God does a lot in the Old Testament. This is a huge concept to understand when you read the Old Testament. What God loves to do is he gives us physical realities that point to spiritual truths. In other words, the Old Testament is full of stories from people's lives, events that happen to the Israelites that teach us about spiritual principles that still apply to us today. The Old Testament is full of stories that talk about the glory of God, but that have a second layer, what the Hebrews would call a remez, like a hidden truth to it, a greater spiritual reality. And we're gonna see some of that today. That's what we're seeing even with the Song of Moses. It's a song that cannot be sung in Egypt while they're in bondage because there's a type of song, a type of praise that cannot be sung while your spirit is in bondage. Why? Because singing to the Lord is more than just singing. It's more than just singing. It is praise. And praise is a response to what the Lord has done for us. That's what praise is. And it's what Moses is going to do here. He's going to praise the Lord for what he has done for Israel. So if you didn't write that down already, write it down. Praise is a response to what the Lord has done for us. It's a response to what the Lord has done for us. If you're a believer, then you know that being a believer means giving God lordship over your life. It means giving him authority over your life. It means getting off the throne and asking him to get on. But you've also probably noticed that your flesh, the part of you that isn't completely ruled by God right now, really likes to get back on that throne, really likes to do that. But there's something that specifically helps with that. And we read about it in Psalm 22.3. It should be on your outlines. It says, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Here's how it works. Praise, genuine praise, singing in response to what the Lord has done for you. It puts God on the throne in our lives. It builds up the throne of God in our lives because praise reminds us what God has done for us. It reminds him why we want him to be king over our lives and it reminds us why we want him to be king over our lives. Praise is a reset button that puts everything back into perspective, everything back where it needs to be with God at the center of our lives, God on the throne. That's why praise is so important. That's why praise is not a spiritual gift in the Bible. The command to praise is given to every believer, every believer. You need to be someone who learns how to praise even if you have a terrible voice. Learn how to praise, it's for the Lord. So let's listen in on the first praise and worship song in history. Verse one, 
Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. That's just a reference to Pharaoh and all the military chariots of Egypt that were drowned in the Reed Sea. Verse 2, we're going to underline some things here. Underline the Lord. The Lord is my strength and song. And he, underline he, has become my salvation. Underline he again. He is my God and I will praise him. Underline him. My father's God and I will exalt him him, underline him. And I really want us to pick up on this. It's an important thing. Moses celebrates the change in Israel's circumstances in verse 1. Do you see that when you look at verse 1? You see he's celebrating God's done this for us. Things are better. He's taking care of our enemies. He's triumphed. We've triumphed along with him. But in verse 2, Moses does not sing, my hope is that my enemies are dead. He doesn't say that. He sings, the Lord is my strength and song. I'm going to explain this more. This is how praise works. When God moves and God blesses our life and our circumstances change, we don't sing, my hope is in the raise that I just got or my hope is in my new promotion. No. We sing, my hope is in the Lord He is my provider and he has been good to me. This is the difference. We don't hope and praise our circumstances when they change. We hope in the Lord and we praise the Lord. So write this down. We hope in the Lord, not in a change of circumstances. Not in a change of circumstances. And then in verse three, Moses sings, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord, or Yahweh, it's the tetragrammaton, the sacred name of God. The Lord is his name. And we've talked about this before. When you mess with a father's kids, and he's a good dad. When you mess with a mama's kids, and she's a good mom, things change real fast, real fast. I want everybody to know Jesus. I want everybody to be saved. But if I catch someone messing with my kids... They're going to need to hear the gospel from me after they wake up. Why? Because we all understand that sometimes love means taking forceful action. Sometimes love means actually fighting for what is right. God's love is not a weak love. God's love is not the kind that says, I love you, but if anyone messes with you, there's not really anything I can do about it. It's not a weak, passive love. It's strong enough to make sure that no one who belongs to him is lost or stolen. And at the Reed Sea, we see a physical picture of a spiritual reality. When the forces of evil come and try to keep the people of God from passing through toward their destination, toward the home that God has given them, God steps in forcefully and says, that's not going to happen. That is not going to happen with my kids. And that's how our story is going to end as well. Satan and his forces will be destroyed and we will be with the Lord forever. Why? Because the Lord is a man of war. And that will be possible because when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back as a man of war. And he's going to fix everything forcefully that is wrong with the world. We're in the age of grace right now. There is an open door to receive grace from God because right now we can approach Jesus as the Lamb of God. 
But the day is coming when that door and that opportunity is going to close. And the day is coming when Jesus will return as the Lion of Judah. Therefore, I highly recommend establishing a relationship with the Lord while you can know him as the Lamb. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains are also drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. And I'm not going to get too much into the nerdy technical details, but in the original language and to the Hebrew mind at the time the Torah was written, this verbiage conveyed the idea basically that God turned the waters of the Reed Sea into the waters of chaos akin to the state of the earth before the Lord started forming it. So hang with me. Do you remember back in Genesis 1-2 where it says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. That's the idea. The idea is that God turned the waters of the Reed Sea as the Egyptians tried to pass through it into these waters of chaos that were chaotic as they were on the surface of the earth before the Lord began forming the earth into what he desired it to be. The concept is basically that these waters of chaos came up from Sheol or Hades from the underworld temporarily and dragged the Egyptian army down into the underworld to the place of death. That's the verbiage that Moses is using here. Now why would he describe it that way? Because that is how dramatic what happened was. Our idea of what happened there is still far too passive. But what happened, what Moses and the Israelites saw happen as God closed this in. Remember we read that the Psalms suggest there was lightning, there was an earthquake, there was mighty wind, mighty rain on the Egyptians as they passed through. What Moses and the Israelites saw was so shocking and violent and clearly supernatural that they could only process this moment, they could only make sense of it by assuming they were watching the veil between the supernatural and natural worlds tear for a moment in time so that the Egyptian army could be dragged into the underworld to the place of death. And it gets even more interesting because in Egyptian mythology, when a decent person died, they would go to this underworld known as the Duat, but on the way to the Duat, they would pass through a place, and this is 100% true, I checked this out, they would pass through a place that in Egyptian mythology is literally called the Sea of Reeds, the Sea of Reeds. It was kind of like an Egyptian version of purgatory where you could work out some karma type stuff on the way to the underworld. If there was someone you loved who died before you, as you were burying them, you would say, I will meet you at the Sea of Reeds. That's what they would say. So understand, connect the imagery of what's happened at the Reed Sea in the mind of the Egyptian. A literal Sea of Reeds opens up so that the Israelites can pass straight through to the other side, completely unhindered. But that same Sea of Reeds closes in on the Egyptian army, swallowing them into death. The imagery is saying to the Egyptians, you're not passing through to the Duat. You're not just passing through the Sea of Reeds. You're stuck here forever. You're dead, dead. 
Basically, what God is doing is, is he's using Egypt's own mythology, Egypt's own belief system to demonstrate his absolute power over everything yet again. He's creating a picture that says to the Egyptians, even if you look at my people through the lens of your own beliefs, they're blessed and you're cursed. The bigger message that God is sending is Egyptians, you should abandon your gods and follow me, the true and living God. And as we know, some, some did, some joined with Israel, but it was an incredible demonstration by God and any Egyptian who would ever hear about this would understand the imagery immediately. Verse six, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces and in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. Underline that word you, those who rose against you. This is subtle, but again, I want you to catch this. The last line there reveals that Moses understood that this miracle happened because the Egyptians got in the way of the Lord's plans. They got in the way of the Lord's plans. The will of the Lord is what is central and Moses understands that here. He understands that when you're in alignment with the will of the Lord, when you're walking in the will of the Lord, you're doing the Lord's will and people oppose you, they're opposing the will of the Lord. And if they're your enemies, they're being the enemy of God. Moses understands that. If you wanna see the Lord do miracles and move in a mighty way in your life, then you need to get on board with the Lord's agenda, with the Lord's plan. That's when you see the Lord fight for you. When you're in the will of God, walking in alignment, walking in agreement with God, and something comes against you, that thing is then coming against God because you were doing the Lord's will and this thing is getting in the way. That's when you see the Lord fight for you in a mighty way. He continues and he says, you sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed or just became firm in the heart of the sea. As we pointed out in our study last week, that verbiage, that wording, is there to make it clear that the parting of the Red Sea was a miracle. Again, the water level did not drop in a uniform manner. It was heaped up on either side of the Israelites. And to suggest otherwise requires ignoring what the text says explicitly in chapter 14 and here in chapter 15. Verse nine, the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hands shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. I love this visual, I love this visual because there's all this posturing, all this scheming and trash talking by the enemy, but it says all the Lord had to do was breathe. All they had to do was breathe out of his nostrils and they were wiped out. They were wiped out. And this is why Moses says in verse 11, who is like you, O Lord? Who's like you, Yahweh, among the gods? And again, just a passing reference. When he says among the gods, that's a reference to the divine counsel. For those of you who know what I'm talking about, Job chapter one, if you wanna to begin to look into that. For those who don't know, I'm sorry, we don't have time to get into it today. Basically, Moses is making the point that God is utterly unique. He's incomparable. There's no other supernatural being like him. Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. 
This next verse, verse 13, you should have this whole verse underlined in your Bibles. I'll tell you why. Because it's a summary of Exodus. It's a summary of Revelation. It's a summary of what the Lord has done for you. Verse 13, it's the whole, whole deal. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. So write this down. Verse 13 summarizes the gospel and the scriptures. It summarizes the gospel and the entire Bible. It says that God in his mercy redeemed a people and then led those people from death to life and then guided them, kept them safe, kept them saved, kept them secure all the way through to his holy habitation. It's the whole gospel, it's the whole story, it's what God has done for you and me in verse 13. I love it, so concise, so poetically stated. Verse 14, the people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord. And this is exactly what would happen. When we reach Exodus 18, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, is going to join up with the family. And when he does, he will say to Moses, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. So Jethro, when he shows up, he's heard all the stories, how God obliterated the gods of Egypt and worked mighty miracles for the Israelites. Then around 40 years later, when the Israelites begin conquering their way through the promised land, the first obstacle they come to is the city of Jericho. And a woman of that city, Rahab, will tell two Hebrew spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And the same sort of idea comes up again, I'm just saying this for the recording, in Joshua 9.9 and involving the Philistines in 1 Samuel 4, verse 8. Moses continues and he says, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. Underline whom you have purchased. And that's once again pointing ahead prophetically to the cross and the idea of redemption. You see, the only way ever, the only way for people to become the Lord's people is if the Lord purchases them. The only way that you and I can become part of the family of God is if the Lord purchases us, redeems us, buys our salvation. And that's what he did on the cross. He purchased us for the highest price ever paid in all of history, in all of the universe, the blood and life of Jesus. That was the purchase price for you and I. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. 
All of verse 17 is a reference to Mount Zion, where the temple would be built in Jerusalem. It's a prophetic declaration that God is going to bring his people into the promised land. He's going to bring them to Jerusalem, where the temple will be built, a sanctuary on earth for the Lord. That's what it's talking about. Verse 18, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. So the overriding imagery to the Hebrew mind is that the Lord brought Israel straight through the waters of chaos on dry land. He opened up a path. He made a way. And he still does. The Lord still does. I don't care how difficult or how hopeless the situation seems. I don't care how chaotic or how impossible it looks. I don't care how overwhelming your enemies are. The Lord is still in the business of making a way where there is no way. He does it every day. He did it at the Reed Sea. He did it at the cross. And he's still doing it today in the lives of people like you and me. You can count on that. Verse 20, then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand and all the women went out after her with timbrels, those are like tambourines, and with dances. And Miriam answered them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Now I've got to kick the hornet's nest for a minute here because the text is asking me to do it. I've got, I've got to just dive into the the deep end here of the issue of woman in ministry. This could be a whole message, this could be a whole message series, but I'm just gonna use the fact that I have to move quickly as an excuse to just make a few observations. It's notable because here we have a woman leading this expression of worship. And the first thing we notice is that while this is indeed a woman leading this expression of worship, we notice that she is leading other women. She's leading other women. The text is explicit about that. She's not instructing or exercising authority over the men. And so the second thing we notice is that she's not bringing an entirely new interpretation of events to the fore. Rather, if you read what she says, she's reiterating what Moses has just sung. What's great, though, is that she adds these timbrels, these tambourine-like instruments, and she adds dancing to the celebration. So she exercises her gifts. She adds to the offering of worship. She enriches the demonstration of praise and the outpouring of love toward the Lord. She does that. She encourages the congregation, and she does all that without usurping or challenging Moses' authority, or without going off in some other direction and saying, I have a different interpretation. I have a new take on what just happened. And notice this though, notice this. As a result, the Lord is blessed, the Lord is pleased, the congregation is encouraged. How do we know the Lord is pleased? Because he recorded Miriam's actions here forever in the word of God, forever. He took time, he took space in his word to say, after this happened, this is what Miriam did. Because he's saying, this is right, this is good. There's an exercising of gifts, but it's not exercised as a challenge to the authority that God had put in place in the form of Moses. And so like I said, I'm sorry we don't have the time to do a full study into the issue of woman in ministry, but if you want to dig into it on your own, want to start getting into that, the main place to start is probably 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 15. Just look up a bunch of different good preachers take on that. Look up a bunch of different commentaries on that. 
And if you can figure that out and come to terms with that, you're going to have a good handle on things and a good understanding of why things are the way they are in the church. Moving on into verse 22, it says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. Shur was a desert region, if you can remember the map from last week, just on the other side of this lake that they went across in all likelihood. And its name means wall, wall. Named by Donald Trump around 3,500, that's such a joke, never mind. So it means wall. It constituted the eastern border of Egypt because it, it was just a desert. It was a dry wilderness, so it was this protective barrier between Egypt and everything on the other side. And in the mind of the Egyptian, when you crossed over this wall, this wilderness of Shur, you were leaving behind blessed Egypt, the land favored by the gods, the fertile crescent of the Nile, and you were heading out into this unknown world of chaos and disorder and danger. That was how the Egyptians would view this wilderness of Shur. It says, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now don't rush past that, think about this. Think about this. They've got flocks and herds. They've got children. They've been walking for three days and, and they haven't come across any water. There's potentially two million of these people and there's no water. And they're continuing to head out further into the wilderness. It, it would have been a very tense situation as people start asking, so, so how far are we going to go before we start saying, hey, we should maybe turn back? Verse 23 now when they came to Mara, they could not drink the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Mara, which means bitter. So word spreads through the ranks. There's water ahead. There's, it's not a mirage. I can see it. There's water. There's plenty for everybody. Those who can, they run as fast as they can. The kids run and they scoop it up into their mouths and they, and they find that it's undrinkable. Undrinkable. It's bitter. Just, just imagine, this is the moment the frustration and the tension ju just boils over. You think of, of, of when you're just having a bad day and there's just that one thing too much that just makes you... This is, this is what's happened in an intense way. It's happening with two million people. And, and can you imagine being Moses at this moment? Moses has to be like, what? What am I doing with my life? What am I doing? What am I doing? Verse 24, and the people complained against Moses. They're like, well, we're not going to complain against God because we saw what he just did to the Egyptians at the Reed Sea. But Moses, you suck. You suck. You're a terrible leader. What are you doing? You don't know where you're going. You're the worst. You're the worst, Moses. And they were saying, what shall we drink? What now, Moses? Well, well now, wait a minute. Weren't these guys just, just praising and dancing and playing with tambourines three days ago because they had seen an unbelievable miracle that had saved their lives? What's going on? Well, God looked in their hearts and he said, here's the thing, guys. I love that you're praising me. I love it. I'm blessed by it. Moses, I'm digging the song. Miriam, nice work with those tambourines. And I don't normally say that about tambourines, but I like what you're doing with the tambourines. And the Lord says, but, but I see your hearts. I see your hearts and I know that we've still got some work to do. I know we got some work to do. So I'm going to take you somewhere to show you that we've got some growing to do when it comes to trusting in me. You see, it wasn't the situation that made them bitter. It was the situation that revealed the bitterness that was already in their hearts. Because that's what bitter situations do. They're like x-rays that reveal what's really going on inside of us. And the Lord has to show us 
these x-rays because otherwise, most of the time, we won't recognize there's anything wrong with us. We'll go, no, I'm good. I'm good, doc, I'm fine. It holds up the x-ray. You got three broken ribs. You're not fine. Look at the picture. Look at the picture, okay? And this is what the Lord does with bitter situations. He, he takes us into them sometime to help us understand that there's something in there we need to talk about so that something comes out of us that makes us go, oh, where, where'd that come from? Why am I so mad? And you realize, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've had this experience where something just really ticks you off, but you know it's completely irrational to be this mad about that thing. And you're like, okay, what's really going on? Where is this coming from? And so the Lord holds up the x-ray so that we will say, oh man, well that's not good. Can we, can we fix that, Lord? Can we do something about that? So that we will get to the place where we'll welcome his work in our lives. We'll ask him to perform some soul surgery. So write this down. Bitter situations bring out what was already inside of us. They bring out what was already inside of us so that we can see it. Verse 25, so he, that's Moses, this is why Moses is such a great leader. The people cry to him. What does he do? He cries out to the Lord. He doesn't yell back at them. Well, you guys kind of suck too. You think it's fun leading two million complainers through the wilderness who forget a mighty miracle every freaking 24 hours? You think this is so awesome? He doesn't do that. That's what I would do, but he doesn't do that. He cries out to the Lord. And then underline this, man, I love verse 25. So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. Showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, underline this, the waters were made sweet. And we're going to unpack that in just a moment. It's so good. But we'll just keep reading a little bit more. There he, that's the Lord, made a statute and an ordinance that's a regulation for them, for the Israelites. And there he tested them. And said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. I'm the Lord who heals you. First Peter 2, should be on your outlines, gives us a great understanding into these couple of verses in Exodus 15. Speaking of Jesus, it says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Would you underline tree? On the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Those are like matching verses for those two verses in Exodus 15. And if you haven't connected the dots yet, the tree in verse 25 speaks of the cross. And while water generally speaks to the presence of God and his spirit in the Old Testament, I'm going to suggest that because this water starts out bitter, it's actually a picture of our personal spirit, our personal soul. And so the picture is this, write this down. When your spirit is bitter, the solution is applying the cross. When your spirit is bitter, the solution is applying the cross to that which is making you bitter. If someone has wronged you, you just cannot forgive them, and you're bitter, the cross, the cross when applied says, 
the Lord forgave you. When we reply, but you don't know what they did. You don't know how much they hurt me. The cross says Jesus was beaten, scourged, crucified, and killed so that you could be forgiven. And when we scream, they owe me, the cross says Jesus paid everything you owe. When we complain about our circumstances being difficult or unfair, the cross says the creator of the universe was crucified on a piece of wood he created by people he created who rejected him. And on and on and on we could go. Whatever situation is causing you bitterness, the cross speaks to it. And when you apply the cross to it, your perspective has to change. When you apply the cross, suddenly that part of your soul which was drenched in bitterness begins to become sweet as you meditate and think about what the Lord has done for you. And as you think about what the Lord has done for you, you find yourself able to let go of this bitterness. We also see the Lord reveal more of his character, another aspect of his personality. He says, I am the Lord who heals you, the Lord who heals you. We know that the Egyptians in the story speak of the world, because Egypt speaks of the world. And as we've said before, it's one thing to get the Israelites out of Egypt, it's another thing to get Egypt out of the Israelites. It's one thing to get a man or woman out of the world, it's another thing to get the world out of the man or the woman. I believe that the spiritual picture God is painting in this verse is of him telling us, I will cleanse you and I will heal you of the effect that the world has had on you. Emotionally, mentally, psychologically, and most importantly, spiritually. What about physically, Jeff? Well, sometimes, but not always. Why? Because the kingdom of God has come into our spirits. The reign of Jesus is taking place in our spirits right now. He's on the throne right here. But if you haven't noticed, Jesus is not ruling the earth right now. He's not running the show right now. And so we still have to deal many times with our physical issues. But we can experience healing of the soul and healing of the spirit as we apply the cross and the grace of God to our lives. Verse 27, then they came to Elam where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they, and then underline this, camped there by the waters, camped there by the waters. If you haven't figured it out, that's some not so subtle symbolism there with the numbers 12 and 70. You're probably like, I know, but we might not know what they mean. So I'll try and explain it as concisely as I can. The number 12 points to, and in the mind of anyone reading the Torah at this time, would point to the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. The number 12 is just another way of saying Israel. Another way of saying Israel. In Genesis 10, we have the famous table of nations. It documents how God essentially divided the world through the line of Noah into 70 people groups or 70 nations. So in scripture, the number 70 is generally a picture of the nations, all the nations of the earth. When you follow the story of Israel through the Old Testament, you learn that when God chose Israel, it wasn't because he only wanted a relationship with one of the 70 nations. He chose Israel to be his messengers and his missionaries to the other 69 nations, but sadly that didn't really end up happening. 
Israel, as we know, became increasingly self-absorbed and they pretty much botched the assignment. Finally, as I mentioned earlier, water in the Old Testament is generally a picture of God's spirit and God's presence. So you put it all together, the picture we have here is of God's people, Israel, and the nations camped together in his presence. That's the picture here. It's a picture of God's desire to dwell in relationship with Israel and the nations, even though those nations were lost, so to speak, at that time. What God's desire was and what God was and is working toward is reversing the effects of the Tower of Babel when the earth was divided and people turned away from the Lord. God is showing here, listen, the long-term goal, the purpose through Israel is the nations being brought back into relationship with the Lord. He wants them all gathered around him. And this is the same imagery that pops up in the ministry of Jesus. You might recall this. In Luke 9, 1 and 2, we read, Then he, that's Jesus, called his twelve, underline that, twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So remember, the 12 are a picture of Israel. And then one chapter later, Luke chapter 10, verse 1, we read, After these things, the Lord appointed 70, underline 70, others also, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. So the 70 that Jesus sent out in chapter 10 of Luke's gospel are a picture of the nations. What's going on here? The ministry of Jesus was, as the Bible says multiple times, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. First to the Jew, first to Israel, then to the nations. This imagery shows up again in Revelation 22 as an angel shows John the Apostle the New Jerusalem and John writes, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And you can think on that and dig into that more on your own time. But here's the idea. Write this down. Verse 27 is a picture of Israel and the nations dwelling together in the presence of the Lord. That's the picture. It's a picture of Israel and the nations dwelling together in the presence of the Lord. I'm going to wrap up with just a couple of points here. The songs of Moses and Miriam. Their songs are are wonderful. They are a glorious outpouring of praise. The only thing that would have made them better was if they were sung on the other side of the sea in faith, in anticipation of the Lord's faithfulness. And so I want to ask you, are you someone who worships in faith? Are you someone who worships in anticipation of the Lord's goodness? Or are you like the Israelites on the other side of the sea? When you're staring at the challenge, you're staring at the obstacle, you're the person saying, oh my goodness, what are we gonna do? I don't know if the Lord is gonna show up. Are you a person who only praises on the other side when God is inevitably faithful? Then you go, oh God, you're so good, you're so amazing. The real step of growth, the real step of faith is worshiping God in anticipation of his faithfulness. It's not faith when he's already done it. It's faith when it hasn't happened yet. If you're not that person, I wanna ask you this. Just just be 
as blunt and as honest as I can because I love you. If you're not loving the Lord and trusting the Lord that way yet, I gotta ask you, how much of the Lord's faithfulness do you need to see before you become someone who worships him in faith? What's it gonna take? How many times will the Lord have to prove himself to you? How many times will he have to be faithful? How many times will you have to tell yourself, man, when am I gonna learn? He always comes through. How many times are you gonna realize you put your foot in your mouth by worrying and being anxious? He's already done enough. Lord doesn't need to do anything else to prove his faithfulness to you, his goodness to you, his trustworthiness to you. He did enough on the cross 2,000 years ago. So it's up to you, make the choice to worship him in faith. Start today. There's this thing, you might not have heard of it, called COVID-19, it's going around right now. It's a great opportunity to worship the Lord in faith. Do not be overcome by anxiety about your job, about money, about your health. Do not be afraid. That's a command of the Lord. If you are, channel it into thanking the Lord in faith that he's gonna take care of you. He's going to be faithful again. Remind yourself, listen, I've seen enough. At this point, it's just stupid. It's just stupid to act like maybe God will come through, maybe he won't. Preach to your own soul, witness to yourself, testify to yourself about the goodness of God. Make the choice to worship him in faith. You do it right now, we're gonna do it in just a couple of minutes. Second thing, are, are you looking for water in the desert when you should be looking for the Lord? If you are, I just wanna tell you whatever water you find is not gonna satisfy, it's gonna leave you bitter because it'll disappoint you. Here's what we read about Jesus in John 7. It says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Listen, if you are thirsty for peace, for meaning, for fulfillment, for strength, for comfort, and you're looking anywhere for it other than the Lord, especially in this time right now, you're gonna be disappointed. You're gonna scoop it up and, and it's gonna be bitter. You're looking for the Lord. He's the only thing that won't disappoint. So if there's anything you're trying to cope with right now, use this coming time of worship, take communion in the back and, and thank the Lord that he's everything you need. Everything you need right now and he'll be everything you need tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. And then lastly, just wanna ask you if you're bitter about something. Is your soul Mara right now? If so, apply the cross. Take communion, remember what the Lord has done for you. See your situation through the lens of the cross in light of what Jesus has done for you and let it go. Let it go. Let the Spirit of God empower you to forgive, empower you to release that thing. Let him turn it into sweetness where there's bitterness right now. And so with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you as always for your word. Thank you for the counsel of your word and that you truly are the counselor. You're the one who has the wisdom and the knowledge that we need. The one who has the counsel that we need to hear. So Father, thank you that your desire is that we would not go through life bitter. 
Your desire is that we would not go through life scared and afraid, even if other people are. But Lord, your desire is that we would apply the cross, that we would drink of your spirit and have everything we need and be satisfied. Not only satisfied, but have streams of living water flowing out of us to those around us. So Father, we just confess in Jesus' name that, that Lord, we are not afraid because you are with us and you will be faithful as you always are. I pray that none would leave this place tonight in a state less than absolute faith and trust in you because you deserve nothing less. Father, we lift up to you uh, every family in our church dealing with sickness right now. We pray for instant healing in the name of Jesus. Father, we pray for strength for, for every person dealing with this in any way in their lives. Lord, would you bring them comfort and protection. Father, help us to honor you. Help us to be the church in a way that makes you proud during this time, Lord. Beginning even right now, help us to honor you and look to you as God, as our provider, as the God who heals, Lord. We love you, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.